All right. Well, welcome. My name is Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you're joining us here this morning. If you haven't already opened your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, I highly encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your seat or the seat next to you. Um, if you don't own a Bible, there's a table in the back with Bibles. I really want to encourage you to take one of those. You can even get up right now. Go get it. That's our gift to you this morning. We are continuing on in Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 12, um, and, and, and we're going to work through a couple passages here, and, and here's what we're going to see as we go through this this morning. We're going to see the heart of Jesus' ministry on earth is preaching and discipleship, preaching and discipleship. In other words, Jesus is freshly inaugurated for his ministry. He's participated in baptism as a symbol of his whole life, whole body, head to toe obedience to God. He's endured the 40-day test of his mental, his emotional, his spiritual preparedness for ministry. And, and by the way, he passed that test with flying colors. He was able to accomplish in 40 days what Israel couldn't do, and not, not just 40 years in exile, but their 400 years in existence as a people. And so having done all of this, he sets out to do the work that the promised king was sent to do. And that work is centered on two things that are highlighted in these verses, but that will be the basis of his ministry during the time that he has on earth. And really, it will become the basis of our ministry as his people, and that is the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. Before we jump in to verse 12, let's pray one more time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear eyes to see, a heart that is soft and able to receive your word this morning. God, thank you that you are a God that is not afraid of darkness. Thank you, God, that you have not been overcome by darkness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's what's happening. Uh, word has gotten to Jesus that John, who, who's had a very public ministry encouraging people to confess their sins, to repent, and to be baptized, he's arrested. And we're going to get more details about John later on in Matthew chapter 14, but this is not like a slap on the wrist for John. He's not spending a weekend in the drunk tank holding cell. This is a serious imprisonment that's going to lead to his eventual gruesome murder by the hand of Herod. And so word of this makes its way to Jesus, and Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Now, that word withdraw or, or withdrew, it doesn't have any fearful connotation to it. So what I don't want you to hear when you see that word withdrew is that Jesus got scared, and he got worried, and so he evacuated the area, that, that he retreated out of fear of getting arrested himself. That's not what this is saying, and that's also not Jesus. Jesus does not flee. He doesn't run away from scary situations out of fear, ever. 
It doesn't mean that he doesn't get scared. Last week, we talked about the humanity of Jesus, how Jesus was fully human, how he experiences the full measure of hunger, the full measure of tiredness, and even the full measure of fear. But Jesus' obedience to the Father and to the mission that he's on is never something that he deviates from, no matter the circumstances. And so the word that you see, if you're reading an NIV or an ESV, um, as, as translated as withdraw, it simply means to move from one place to another. And so Jesus moves strategically and purposefully here, not out of fear of persecution, but as Matthew points out yet again, to fulfill Scripture. And where does he go? He travels from Nazareth, which is where he grew up, and he travels 40 miles north to Capernaum. It's a village of about 15,000 people on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this will become the home base of his ministry, around which Jesus is going to spend the rest of his life until he heads south into Jerusalem at the end of his life. Now, normally, you would think that a move from one town to another is not that big of a deal, except for the fact that geographical positioning has already been a major theme in the book of Matthew. It's one of the ways that God communicates and validates the things that he's doing. Have you ever noticed how geographically minded the Bible is? I'm going to be honest with you, I am terrible with geography. Really bad. Like, I know where I am right now. I know how to get home from here. But if my life depended on filling out a map of our globe, I would die. I would die. The Bible includes more geographical data than most people know what to do with. And if you're like me, you might skim past all the places and the different locations. But almost every Bible, every Bible in this room has pages upon pages of maps in the back of it. And be honest, how many of you, by show of hands, as you're reading the Bible over the past month, we'll say last month, how many of you consulted a map in your Bible as you're reading the Bible? Raise your hands. A few of you, the same people who consulted the map while reading Lord of the Rings, I imagine, as well. Okay. It's not a dig, I'm just saying, that's probably similar people. See, geography and maps might not mean a whole lot to many of us today, maybe some of us, but I think partly it's because we've got Google Maps, so you can Google Map, and you don't need to memorize or understand different places, but geography, geography is one of the ways that God communicates very specific promises to, to his people in the Bible. It's also one of the ways that God verifies those promises. So we really should be consulting our maps in the Bible to have that spatial awareness because it is significant to God. It's significant uh, to Matthew as well as he's pointing this out. So we've already seen um, in the book of Matthew so far. So Mary uh, sovereignly meets Joseph in Judah to fulfill God's promise back in Micah 2 that the Savior of Israel would be specifically from a little backwater town of Bethlehem. That's chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. A little bit later in verses 13 through 15, Joseph and Mary are told by God to flee to Egypt, very specifically here, in order to fulfill God's promise back in Hosea 11 that he would call his son out of Egypt, just like he would call his people out of Egypt. Later on in verse 23, Joseph and Mary are told to move to Nazareth so that Jesus would be able to be identified as a Nazarene. Now, if this geographical orchestration is so important for the people of the Bible, don't you think that it might be important for you and for me? Have you ever stopped to consider that where you are right now in space and time is part of God's sovereign plan? That maybe that move back in middle school 
or that relocation in high school because your, your family is in the military, or the school that you got into, or the job that you landed that brought you to Amherst, Massachusetts, of all places, is actually a purposeful, intentional orchestration of a sovereign God. You are not here out of chance. <laughs> you are not. Life isn't just happening around you. You are not just randomly born into the century that you were born into, into the family that you were born into, to live in the city and the town that you were born into. If God is so specific in how he reveals his plan as unfolding in the Bible, and not just in broad details, but down to specific places like small villages of Bethlehem in Judea or Capernaum and the northern shore of Galilee, then we must consider that God has us all in Amherst, Massachusetts, right here, right now, for a specific purpose and a specific reason. Wherever God places his people is never just a place. It's never just a place. Capernaum was not just a place to God. To the people, it was just a place. It was just a place. Actually, it was worse than just a place. It was looked down upon. It hardly made sense from the eyes of the people for Jesus to set up shop there. I mean, think about this for a second. If you were to, to if Jesus came today and he was beginning his ministry, like where would be a strategic place for him to base his operations out of? Probably a major city. That's what my guess would be. Maybe New York or Chicago or LA or Philly or something like that. In Jesus' time, if he's going to start a spiritual revival for the people of God and usher in the new kingdom of heaven, that place that would make the most sense is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the, the city of God. But that's not where Jesus goes. He travels from Nazareth in the opposite direction of Jerusalem to a place that is roughly 106 miles away from Jerusalem. It is strange that Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem. It's even stranger that he would go to Capernaum in Galilee. There's a commentator named Frederick Bruner, and this is what he says about the situation. Galilee is a strange place for a Messiah to work. Galilee was not just geographically far from Jerusalem, it was considered spiritually and politically far as well. Galilee was the most removed of the Jewish provinces, located as it was at the northernmost area of this region. The distance from Zion was not only geographic. Judeans thought Galileans sat rather loose to the law and were less biblically pure than those in or near Jerusalem. Finally, Galilee was notorious as a nest of revolution and a haunt of proto-zealot revolutionary movements. Just a few years before Jesus' birth, Sepphoris, the capital city of Galilee, had been led in revolt by Judas of Galilee against the Roman government and had brought Galilee into defeat and many of the people there into shame. Therefore, when Jesus retreated to Galilee, he did more than head north. He seemed to veer off. Man, Galilee is geographically distant. It is politically distant. It is religiously and spiritually distant. They are theologically loose. It's an area full of miscreants and rebels. But despite this picture, Jesus is not veering off as he goes to Capernaum. He was going to Capernaum purposefully. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. 
So this is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. It outlines what was going to happen to the people of Israel before Jesus would ever come. Zebulun and Naphtali, these are two tribes of Israel that make up the, the area of Galilee. And they would be the first tribes to enter into exile in about 753 B.C. And there is a reason for that. It was not a nice place back then either. It was an area of great sinfulness, an area of great brokenness. They were severely disobedient and rebellious toward God. And the words spoken over them in Isaiah chapter 9, which we see here in verse 16, is that they walked in darkness and they lived in darkness. God even calls that region uh, as being the shadow of death. It's a dark place. But there's an incredible promise which Matthew reminds us all of. That yes, they'd be the first to enter into the season of judgment and discipline through their exile, but they'd also be the first to be released from exile. That's what you see right here. That in the darkness, there would be a light of freedom from captivity that would shine. And this actually did happen. A couple hundred years later in 538 BC, the people in the area of Galilee were the first to experience the light of hope after hundreds of years of darkness and exile. And that light would eventually reach all of the rest of Israel, but it would start in Galilee. Now that's cool, but that already happened. So why is Matthew bringing it up here again? It's a good question. We talked about this briefly when we went through the book of Nehemiah, but here's a helpful way to understand Old Testament prophecies. There are often layers of interpretation and fulfillment. You should see a slide on your screen right now. All prophecies that you see in the Old Testament are going to have an immediate and literal uh, interpretation and fulfillment. And that is seen in the history of Israel. But then most prophecies will have an additional interpretation and fulfillment. And, and you see that on an intermediate and spiritual level, which is found in Christ and the church. And then you're also going to see that in an ultimate and eternal way seen in God's final kingdom. And so what I just described to you about the release of Galilee, uh, the, the, the Galilean region from their exile in 538 BC, uh, it, it is the, the immediate and the literal fulfillment which we see in the history of Israel. But what Matthew is doing is he is taking that same prophecy and he's showing that there, there's, there's more to this. Uh, it wasn't just about the immediate and the literal, but there is an intermediate and a spiritual fulfilling of this promise, and that is in Christ and his church. Are you following me so far there? Here's specifically what Matthew is saying. In the same way that God showed up in the dark place of Galilee to free his people from their captivity, thus being a spark of hope for the rest of the people of God that he would eventually free, Jesus is showing up in the dark place of Galilee to free his people once again. But not from a physical captivity, but an even more severe spiritual captivity. Matthew is taking what God did historically in Galilee, and he's saying, hey, you thought that that was awesome. There's something even far greater, more incredible that's happening right now. That was great, but that was always pointing to something that was even greater, and that thing is happening right now. What could be greater than release from captivity? Well, God is not just saving us from a physical oppressor. Remember back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Exile and captivity were merely circumstantial problems 
Sin and death are eternal problems. The, the light in Galilee is brighter than anything the world has ever seen. It is the light of the gospel. That's what's coming to Galilee. Now on paper, Capernaum is a terrible place to birth the gospel. Remember, it is geographically distant from the bulk of God's people. It is religiously stagnant. It is politically full of rebels and insurrectionists. It's, it is spiritually dead where everyone is walking and living in darkness. But if you know anything about the gospel, I think you're already putting these things together. Of course that's where God would go. Man, like, God is not retreating. He is advancing into the darkest place imaginable. He's not sauntering toward greener pastures. He is running headlong into a spiritually dark desert. And what you see right here is the heart and mindset of the first missionary. The first missionary. And Mercy House, this is not us. This is not us. How often do we pray, God... Reveal to me the darkest place on earth and, and let me go and bring light and hope of the gospel to them. Probably not very often. How often do we walk down the street and we're looking for the meanest, grouchiest, most lost person and think, man, that is a person I need to share the light of the gospel with. That's not us. We see darkness and our impulse is to avoid it, to flee from it. Maybe just ignore it. That is not how the mind and the heart of King Jesus works. Which is why when Jesus hears that John the Baptist is in prison, which means that the, the one gospel preacher that exists in the church gets sidelined, Jesus buckles up and he enters into the battle, into the darkest place where the fiercest fighting is going to happen. And then you see verse 16 being lived out. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, a, on them a light has dawned. You see what Matthew is saying? Jesus is the light that is dawning. Look at how John opens his gospel account. It's a little more explicit. Here he's introducing Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, thank you that you do not flee from darkness. Darkness flees from you. Thank you that this is the story of many of us who are here today. God, that we're only here today because you moved toward us while we were walking and living in darkness. Thank you that not even the shadow of death makes you flinch. Remind us of how nothing has and nothing ever will prevent you from setting captives free. Amen. What does this light in the darkness look like? Look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus goes to Capernaum. He, he begins preaching. And I say this with zero disrespect to King Jesus, but he's not very innovative. 
okay? Which is fine because he's not trying to be. His initial message is identical to John's. Verse 17 there, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's exactly the same sermon that John preached. And partly, this is to affirm the ministry of John. It is Jesus' way of saying, I fully endorse John's ministry, and my ministry is in the same trajectory as John's. But the second reason for why Jesus preaches this way is because this is the basic call to action of the gospel. This is the basic call to action of the gospel. The gospel is not flashy. The gospel doesn't require eloquent speech or fancy words, or even fancy clothes. That's what you see with John the Baptist. It doesn't require bells and whistles. It is simple. And hear me when I say this. It never gets old, and it never gets boring. In a time of instant access to all sorts of media, all sorts of preaching just available at our fingertips, I think this can be hard for us today. I think it can be hard for us today. We so often want, desire to be tantalized and to be entertained. We want to be wowed. We want to be moved. We, we have this tendency toward the itching ears that lead us to accumulate teachers that suit our own passions. That's 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. And so I do wonder, I wonder, if Jesus were to preach today, would we just scroll past him? Would he capture our attention? Would, would he capture our focus enough for us to engage with his teaching? Because the call of the gospel is this basic message. Turn to God. That's what repent means. Turn to God. And all effective gospel preaching is going to just strongly encourage people to turn to Jesus. And it's done so with urgency. You see that there, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning the time is now. God is at work right now. There's nothing more important than him and what he's doing. So drop what you're doing, repent, and turn to God. That is the whole of the Christian message. This is the heart of the preaching of Jesus. Can we hear it? Can we receive it? Or do we need something more out of it? The question is not only can we hear and receive this basic preaching, but is this how we preach and share the gospel? Is there a clear call in our preaching for others to turn away from sin and turn toward God? Is there a sense of urgency in the message that we're preaching? Or are we worried about how the other person will receive it? Are we nervous about being too harsh or being too severe? And look, there is nuance and there is a way to preach repentance with urgency and with grace. After all, Jesus wasn't a jerk. But our tendency is not that we preach too much repentance or, or we preach with too much urgency or that we aren't gracious or kind in our follow-up of that. Our tendency is typically that we are too gracious and kind to ever even preach repentance with any level of urgency. If we want to be a light in the darkness. We must preach repentance with urgency like Jesus did. The, the word that we translate as preach means to herald. To herald. Before newspapers, before Twitter, a, a, a herald was a person who would have the job of traveling to different villages and towns and, 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 and they would preach or they would proclaim, they would herald news from the king. And they would do so clearly, they would do so boldly, and not in their own authority, but in the authority of the king. 
This is what it means to be light in the darkness, to be a herald of the gospel, which means good news, to proclaim this good news. And this, the, the reason why preaching of repentance is actually good news is because we don't have to be in captivity anymore. That's the message of the gospel. We actually can turn away from our sin. We don't have to be enslaved to it anymore. And better than just being able to turn away from sin, we actually have someone to turn to. That is the light. The preaching of repentance is uncomfortable if we focus on just the sin. But it is beautifully glorious. It is light coming into darkness when we preach about Christ who saves us from our sin. That's Jesus' purpose, and that is the light that's coming into this darkness. It's the heart of Jesus' preaching from the very beginning all the way to the end of his life. That's the dawning of light for those who live in darkness. That was true back then, and that's true right now. Now, Jesus didn't just preach. He made disciples. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. As Jesus is preaching repentance with urgency all throughout Galilee, he, he, he comes across some people who are working and he calls out to them and he, invite, and he invites them to follow him. Here is what's fascinating to me. If you were to start a worldwide movement, who would you pick to be on your some sharp, shrewd lawyers, maybe some political leaders who already have some sway and some, um, uh, some popularity. That's not where Jesus goes. Jesus sees two fishermen, two fishermen, Peter and his brother Andrew, and he picks them. And mind you, these are fishermen by trade. These aren't just a couple of guys casually fishing on a weekend. This is their profession. And as if to communicate that he's doubling down on that decision, he sees two more fishermen, James and his brother John with their dad, and he recruits them. So if you have 12 spots on your team, you just filled a third of them with uneducated, likely illiterate, uh, socially outcasted fishermen. This is not the dream team, but it is the team who Jesus chooses for himself. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're going to go on to be our spiritual forefathers. They were mighty men of God who helped establish and nurture the early church. They wrote parts of the Bible. They, they served God faithfully until the very last second of each of their lives. But here, we see them in their humbling origin story. Exhausted, dirty from working their day job on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Here's something I want to point out. Jesus invites people to respond. He invites people to respond. Notice how Jesus is not just a walking billboard. He's not just making a public service announcement. He's not merely preaching and talking at people. He's inviting people to follow him. This is, in essence, what it means to be a Christian, not just to know and to hear what Jesus says. There are plenty of people who know what Jesus says. Secular scholars today who study the Bible as an ancient historical text that can likely recite it and teach it way better than I can right now. 
But that does not make them Christian. What makes someone a Christian is believing what Jesus says, placing faith in him, and then following him. And that's what these four men are invited into. And that's what we are all invited into as well. Whether you are a Christian or not, Jesus' words are an invitation to you to follow him. It's an invitation for you to respond. They are not passive declarations. Jesus is not like a meteorologist who reports the weather and then you decide how that information is going to affect your life. The preaching of Jesus and his gospel is for us to repent, to turn away from sin, and to turn toward God. But God doesn't just want our attention. He wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want us to just look at him. He wants us to walk with him. And so that's why he calls out to Peter and Andrew. And that's why he calls out to James and John. And that's why he's calling out to you today. Some of us might have been and might be giving God our attention, but our feet are firmly planted. We hear him, but we're not changing. We, we, we might acknowledge him, but we've got our own lives to live out over here. And friends, that's not how this works. We might be hearing his words on a Sunday morning. We might be reading his words in our quiet time. We might even see this invitation to walk and live in specific ways, not in the darkness like Galilee, but in the light of Jesus. And are we responding to that invitation? Brothers and sisters, are we actively following Christ? Now, the men that Jesus called out to here in these verses, the men who heard Jesus' invitation to follow him, they responded. Look how they responded. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their, uh, and their father and followed him. These men responded immediately, and they leave everything behind to follow Jesus. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Remember, these aren't casual weekend fishermen. This is their livelihood. This is a radical response to the invitation to follow Jesus. It's actually quite reckless. It's arguably very foolish of them. No work means no pay, which means no food, which means no shelter. We, they don't have like any unemployment to collect at this point. We don't see any mention of a savings account for them to live off of. This is not a measured and wise response. This is a costly response. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, give me a minute. Let me just pack up my stuff here and get it back to the shed. No, they, they drop their nets. They leave, the, they leave their father and they follow him. The picture is them abandoning their business. They're walking away from everything that they knew. James and John, again, they don't just leave their nets. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. It is incomplete for us to think that God only calls us to give up sinful things to follow him. He surely does. But he also sometimes calls us to give up everything to follow him, which might include good things. It might include our jobs. It might include our careers. Maybe even more difficult than that. It might include our goals, our aspirations, our expectations, our visions for our lives, our, our dreams. It might include things that are nearest and dearest to us, our friends, our families, our loved ones. 
But Alden put it really well last week. He said, God never calls us to give anything up that he himself doesn't fulfill in an infinitely greater way. Amen? Now, I, I don't think that God is asking all of us to quit our jobs today. Like, don't put in your notice right now in this service. I don't think he's asking us to abandon all of our studies. So if you have midterms, keep studying for those. But I do think he might be calling some of us to do this. And we know who we are. There is a specific invitation here from Jesus to Peter, Andrew, James, and John to enter into full-time vocational ministry. And that calling might be directed to some of us who are sitting here today. The call to hang up our nets, so to speak. And some of us are called, some of you are called to leave your jobs. Perhaps the only work that you've ever known to put down the hammer, to, to lay up the stethoscope, to sell your business, and to follow God into full-time professional vocational ministry. And if this is you, if this is a calling that you've heard, if this is an invitation that you've been wrestling with, I, I just want to take a second to, to encourage you. I want to encourage you with what I said earlier. God is not asking you to give up anything that he himself will not fulfill in an infinitely greater way. He will provide for you. He will sustain you. It might not make any sense. You might have spent your whole life up until this point investing in your profession and your vision for your career. It might appear reckless. It might even appear very foolish. I know of a person who got their master's degree in mechanical engineering who heard this call, and so he abandoned his career. He turned down a job offer. He dropped his calculator, so to speak, in order to fundraise a salary to work in full-time ministry as a response to this invitation. God bless that man. Maybe you have a similar dilemma. Maybe your friends and your family are trying to talk some sense into you, but if God is calling you to follow him, you must do so no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Not just because he is God and we should obey him, but because he's inviting you into something that's going to give you greater joy and greater fulfillment and greater delight than anything you could ever imagine. And so drop your nets. Leave your boat and follow him. If this is you and you're like, oh my gosh, I think I need to quit my job and enter into ministry, come talk to me. At least drop a note in the basket and we'd love to reach out to you and support you and encourage you as you navigate that decision. Now, for the majority of us, we probably are not hearing the time into vocational ministry, and that's okay. That's okay. That's not the only person who God is speaking to right here. Here's the thing that I, I want you to see in these verses. Um, the work that you do and the experiences that you have are valuable and usable as you follow Jesus. Do you hear that? Here's what I mean. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, now look closely here, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See how God affirms their profession as fishermen. 
He didn't have to do that. I think we so often think that when Jesus calls us to follow him, whether that's in full-time vocational ministry or maybe just in a particular season of our lives, that our jobs and our experiences have to be completely left at the door and then we're called into now the holy work of God as if there's some compartmentalization between our secular work over here and then our ministry work for God over here. But look at how God connects the two. He's not just speaking their language here. He's telling them that he's going to redeem Redeem their work experience. When you think about it, fishermen actually make great followers of Christ, great preachers of the gospel, great disciple makers. They're used to working long hours, often very late at night. They, they know how to work hard. They know how to pour themselves out and labor. They know how to persevere through frustration when the fish aren't biting and there's seemingly no fruit to their labor. They know how to experience patience. They've developed great, great courage from facing fierce storms through the years. God is not just affirming their profession and saying, oh, I can probably work with some of that. He's pointing out, no, that has been purposefully preparing you for what you're about to do. Fishing for fish has been getting you ready for the redeemed profession of being fishers of men. This is what it's all been leading to. And look, this doesn't mean that we should all quit our jobs and start fishing as if that is the only true holy occupation. I think if these guys were farmers, Jesus would have said, follow me and I will make you farmers of men. I think that if they were bankers, Jesus might say, follow me and I will make you investors into men. Like the point in this, is that in the same way that, that your geographical residence is not a coincidence, that, that your time period that you live in right now is not a coincidence. Neither is the work that you've done, whether that's as a computer programmer or a physician's assistant or as a plumber or as a truck driver or as a mom or as a dad, which the Lord is inviting you to follow him and to submit those experiences and that labor and everything that you've learned during those experiences to be used for the building of his kingdom. So what you've done for work isn't just usable by God. It might very well be the preparation for what he is inviting you into now. This isn't just the story of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. This is the personal story of Matthew as well. We're going to hear more about his invitation to follow Jesus later on in chapter 9. But his profession and experience has been that of a tax collector. A tax collector. Tax collectors were people who were highly literate. They had to be able to read and understand and speak multiple languages in order to collect taxes from all of the different people under Roman rule. They were also trained and experienced in writing records and reports. Many of them were proficient in a type of shorthand, which allowed them to take highly accurate notes very, very quickly. Can you think of someone better equipped to write an account of Jesus' ministry? It's no wonder that because of this, scholars believe that Matthew's gospel is the closest to a literal transcript of the events as they happened. Yes, Matthew was called away from his profession as a tax collector, but everything he learned, all the training, all the experience, all those long hours and labor, it was all preparing him for his ministry. Matthew, who was once a record keeper for the king of Rome, followed Jesus to become a record keeper for the king of creation. So if you're thinking, God can't use me, I'm a fill in the blank, then let this passage remind you that God can use anyone. 
He can use fishermen. He can use tax collectors. He used shepherds like David. He used engineers like Nehemiah. He used political leaders like Joseph, tent makers like Paul. And so the question is, how might God be inviting you to use your experiences, your skills, your gifts to serve him as you follow him? That's a question for you to answer between you and the Lord. Jesus calls us to follow him. And Jesus leads by example. What we see in these verses this morning is what the holy profession of every believer is. Every believer. And that is to preach the gospel of Christ and to invite people to follow him. This is not just the work of pastors like myself or elders in our church or the professional vocational ministers that are on staff at our church. This is the holy calling on all of our lives. And so the question this morning is, how will we respond to this invitation? How will we respond? Will we follow him? Will we bring the light of the gospel into the darkness of this world? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Before Galilee would experience the fullness of the light of Christ, it would get darker. Jesus' ministry began with him running into darkness. When we take communion, we remember Jesus never fled from that darkness, no matter how dark that got. He didn't avoid the darkness. He endured it until the very, very end, until on that cross, as Jesus died for our sins, and the world would experience the darkest moment in all of human history. When we take communion, we follow Christ into his death. We follow him into his darkest hour. And we do so knowing that Jesus was not overcome by that darkness. And neither will we. And so this morning, I pray and hope that communion can empower us to drop our nets, to leave our boats, to follow Jesus into the dark parts of this pioneer valley, but also to the darkest corners of all the earth and to fulfill the holy profession that every Christian has, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your steadfast love that endures forever. God, thank you that your steadfast love endures darkness. Thank you that to you, darkness is not even darkness. There is no place that we can go to hide from you. There is nothing so dark that it can't be seen by you. And more importantly, there's nothing so dark that you cannot reveal and expose and bring into complete light. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who are struggling in darkness. Lord, I pray that you would move toward them as we see you do in your word all the time, that you would move to them and that they would be able to respond and call out for help, God, that you would deliver the captives in darkness today. Lord, I pray for others of us who are wrestling with our calling, our profession. Lord, whether that is to enter into ministry or to just have a ministry, God, show us, convict us, Lord, 
encourage us in our calling to make disciples and to preach your word, Lord. Whether that's from the Lord, I pray that you would grow our church and mature us into one that boldly preaches your gospel, Lord. Not from any of our own authority, but as heralds of your good news, Lord. I pray that you would use the people in this building to bring light into darkness, God. Lord, I pray now that as we respond to you uh, in taking communion, that we would be able to um, pair ourselves, follow you into this darkness, God, knowing that in the end, Lord, we will be living in your glorious light. God, we love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.